continuing in Mark 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. God, thank you for that reading, Carla. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our 12th or 13th sermon in the book of Mark as we've been walking through this gospel and sort of looking at its shape, looking at its stories, and looking at how it comes to us as sort of this revelation of us following God on the way. Now, what's most noticeable in this third passion prediction is the clearest prediction of what does it mean to— or clearest naming of what it means to be the disciples of Jesus Christ, and we'll get to that. But as we've been walking this way, we've been sort of, um, in chapters uh, 1 through 10, this is the end of 10, we have one last scene next week where we'll look at the healing of, of restoring of sight to Bartimaeus, uh, along with uh, what everybody loves, uh, Palm Sunday. Um, we'll sort of hold those two together as these last things before Jesus enters in Jerusalem. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Jerusalem events, those events which make up Holy Week, take up five chapters in Mark's gospel. Um, and so our way of even walking through it is a little distorted, right? Because we have in our time, um, because the church has, has sort of created this way of us living into the rhythms of the gospel story, has made this season of Holy Week, this time in which we sit in those last five chapters. The difficulty becomes is that, at least for me, 
It's hard to sit in the last five chapters. As Easter is approaching, the end of the school year is approaching, um, spring is here, it's fun to be outside. Uh, sunlight closes today, so none of you have that excuse, but um, although you could skin up, which some, some of my friends will do, so uh, we have this time in which it's hard to sit in those final five chapters. And then we have Good Friday, and there's this famous quote, we've, we've talked about Charles Taylor here quite a bit about this guy who talks about how we live in a secular age. And one of the things he notices is that Good Friday to many of the people throughout church history had a proximity to um, the actual events of Good Friday that, let's say, a random April day in uh, 1944, which would be earlier, or 1000 AD, doesn't have. That the imagination of the church was formed as such that when we come together and we celebrate Good Friday or Easter, we actually bring ourselves closer to those events than if we were to do them any other day. And he says one of the reasons that that has fallen off is sort of this sign in which we are entering into sort of a more secular age, that time only has meaning in its linear progression towards, let's see, it's April, graduation and summer break. Um, uh, that time only has its meaning as it goes forward. And yet what he said is that, that Christians throughout history had this notion in which when we come together on those days, we in some sense, when we bring those events forward to us through reading them, through sitting in them, through listening to them, that they become realer to us because we're doing them in that way and in that place on those days. And so incidentally, here's our ad for today. Um, there's a Good Friday service this year, one of the first ones we've had. We had one a couple years ago, but a Good Friday service here in which we'll be encouraged to sit into that story as well. This third passion prediction, which Jesus gives us, um, uh, which is up there now, is sort of this idea of that all these things will happen to him and three days later he will rise. And yet for most of us in the church, it's, it's like as if the three days later he will rise at the end. It's the only thing we participate in. And that means that Easter still has great joys for us, that a dead person has risen is great news. But that the hope of the world, the crucified Messiah, was crucified by me and by you. And that we buried God's light into the ground. And that we saw this one who was so near to us as God. And yet somehow in a week, um, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The names in which we proclaim on Palm Sunday have turned into destruction by Friday, so much so that we go out to a tomb. Easter begins with that walk to that tomb. So it's my encouragement for us to, to, to sort of realize that it's been great to have 13 sermons in these first 10 chapters of Mark, um, but 11 through 15 is where the identity of this one is more fully disclosed. And so, uh, Holy Week, uh, I'll have a resource for you to go through some of the readings, to bring those to you, and then we'll have a good Friday service in which we sit um, with the cross in its own destruction and in its own ways in which we have rejected God so that the light of Easter can shine all the brighter. That's one of the reasons why we sort of walk through the story the way that we do, is so that we, like a movie, you don't just watch the end and feel the high, but that you sit in all the pages. You sit in each of the moments that come to you. Um, with books, you know, uh, if the book is named after a character, um, 
you know that they're going to at least make it to the end. They might die at the end, but they're at least going to be there. And so you go, oh, it's kind of, somebody said, well, the tension is lost then, right? Well, you know all these problems they face along the way aren't real problems. Um, but that's not uh, why we do that. We do that so we participate in the story of them and their problems and tensions and journeys along the way. So too with the gospel, we walk in that way and participate in that darkness and in that time together. So that's sort of the, the, the pitch for Good Friday and, and what, where we're going from here. And then Easter, which is, um, I had this joke, it was pandemic year, and I was mad. I, people had different emotions. I was mad. My emotion was mad. Um, but I, I had long joked with my friends that I listened to about, I don't know, five or six Easter sermons every year. And preaching an Easter sermon is really hard. Um, because so often we focus on the cross, we focus on the events, or we create sort of a metaphorical sort of angst in ourselves. But the good news is often lost. And so because I was mad and I had I'd lost my way in life, this was Dante's beginning, beginning as I woke up in a dark woods and I had lost my way. Um, that was Easter three years ago. But anyways, I joked that I'm going to preach a sermon on why all Easter sermons are bad. And my friend said, eh. Not a good look, man. I was like, yeah, but nobody's going to listen. And he was like, fair, fair. Uh, I pulled back and didn't do it. But, but there's this way in which we try to hold Easter in that way in which it's not just evidence for something, not just a way to talk about the cross again, not just um, bringing us back into, you know, you need to repent and this other, but to hold it in its true joy. Not sure I succeed. That's why I, I read an older sermon on Easter every year that I think does that well. But, but that to hold that in its true joy, not to utilize that day to make some other point, but to really have the light of the Easter dawn break bright in our congregation's life together. So uh, that was my way. Kelly says I'm always too much of a downer. That was my way of saying, you know, I pitched Good Friday a lot, but Easter's also coming. Um, so, so don't get lost in, in that either. Um, but this, this week we have this last teaching, and so we've, we've sat with these teachings from the Transfiguration all the way until um, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king, the Palm Sunday approach. And what we found is, is that there's this, this final sort of demonic healing that moves into these teachings that are sort of catechetical in form or, or catechesis, and that they were meant to be memorized for this word structure, um, and it would give people a way of learning um, what does it mean to be in this community? Particularly, we looked at Mark's community in that time, and that's surrounding sort of that second temptation, uh, or that second prediction of his death. And then he gave these, these teachings that I think sort of follow this household rule, which is he goes through divorce, which would be marriage, children, which would be how you rate, relate to your kids, wealth, um, and then the final one, which we're going to do today, is, is slavery. Is that, and so in the ancient world, they would, they would, how would you structure your household? They would have these rules, uh, household codes is what they're called, and they would be following that same way. You would have your marriage, you'd have your children, you'd have your wealth, and then you'd have your slaves. Um, and so if you read those in the ancient world, they're, they go, you know, most cultures don't write down their terrible stuff. Um, so they go from like kind of nice to like pretty not nice, but, but the way that Paul uses them in, in the later part of the New Testament, or the way Jesus redefines them here, is brings them to a deeper sort of human dignity type way, or brings them into a greater challenge. So the wealth one, which we read last week, ended with one thing you lack. Though you think you have everything, there's one thing you lack. 
And the instruction for governing wealth for the man who had many possessions was to give it all away. And so Christ, in this way, takes these teachings, which would have been good ways to manage your household, and turns them on their head in saying, good ways to manage your household if your household is a member of the kingdom. Or even more importantly, which I think is, is what Mark is leading, is the church is the new household of the kingdom. And so in this teaching we have for today, which we'll, we'll pause on when we get to it, is the not so among you. Marriages are cast off in the ancient world and rabbis, but in the secular world, um, wealth is gathered up in a way in which we can find our own security. Children are possessions in a way in which we secure our line. Um, slaves are these in which we are above and we only manage, and Jesus tells us to become. His, his instruction for this church in which he is forming to witness to his kingdom in the world is not so among you. And so we have this way in which this one is taking shape for us today. But I wanted to start with the, with the third passion prediction, which is still up on the screen, um, because it nails what I think what we are doing as disciples, particularly disciples reading the Gospel of Mark. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. As we are reading this book, we are participating on the way up to Jerusalem that we are walking up to this moment with Jesus to see those events. Importantly, Jesus is leading the way. As we've been readers of this gospel and we march up to Jerusalem with Jesus, it is not us who lead, but it's Christ who leads us here. I think many of us, knowing the shape of the story so far, might have turned away ourselves, but it is Christ who is leading his people up that hill. The disciples and the readers of Mark are both astonished and those who followed were afraid. Jesus, as he's going to this place to celebrate the Passover, and they have some mindset of what the events that might happen might be, it brings about astonishment and fear among the people following him. Astonishment and fear. Now, part of what, me, what Mark might be structuring here is, and then, he, and then he took the 12 aside, is this sort of concentric circle sort of thing. And so you have Christ leading the way or, or at the center, um, uh, and then you have the 12, which are the people who, like, Rabbi, uh, we're stuck with you. There's that great line in the uh, Gospel of John in which Jesus says that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody leaves. And Jesus says to the disciples, why, don't, why aren't you leaving as well? And they say, but whom else tell, shall we go? You have the words of life. Um, so these disciples, who are at least aware enough to say, we'd like to leave, but to whom else shall we go? Only you have the words of life. So you have the 12, and then you have um, the, the crowd that sort of is following, and they share in more the, the followed and afraid. And so Jesus has this community of people who's sort of following him. I think it's in one of the other Gospels. He sort of arrives with 120 people to Jerusalem. But point being is, is we think of Jesus and the 12, but there's this sort of mass of people going up to Jerusalem with him. Now, the psalm that Jonathan read for us this morning is one of my favorite psalms, but it comes from a pilgrim psalm up to Jerusalem. It comes from the song of a sense. And what I love about it, it says that, that we will sow, we will plant in tears, but we'll reap in joy. Which I think is a good way to think of the events in which we are walking up the hill to Jesus with. 
Um, Jesus leading the way. Also, in Mark's gospel, the way is sort of the path in which we walk with Jesus. Uh, There's a notion in which the early Christians were at one point called followers of the way. We are like students of the way that Jesus is leading us on. He takes the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, will mock and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus here gives a, um, a table of contents to what's going to happen from 12 forward. Particularly, we're going to see as in Good Friday and the other teachings, but Jesus, is, is, as he gets to Jerusalem, is shuttled around and passed around. They will, they will, they will deliver him over to the chief priests um, and then hand him over to the Gentiles. Jesus, as he goes to Jerusalem, is one who is, who is sort of cast from place to place as if nobody wants to be responsible for what's going to happen here, but everybody knows it has to happen. Jesus, and it's... If you read it slowly, which I think would be the challenge of, of the, if I get that, when I get that resource out next week, you see in the ways in which as he is more bound in his movement, he's more confident and assured in who he is. It's almost like as this one becomes more bound, passed around in this, that, and the other, the character and content, the power of who he is, seems to magnify. Um, he goes to halls of power and seems to control the room. This one who just sort of aimlessly at least seems to go through the countrysides, now as he's brought to where he needs to be, is in somehow being brought um, more to his enthronement, which is part of what the, the cross is going to be in the next scene, but, but brought to his enthronement in that way. Um, and it's, it's both the, the people of Israel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, who are involved in this, but also the Gentiles. Um, they will hand him over to the Gentiles, which is us, will mock and spit and flock and kill him. That this is um, not just Israel, but us as well, being involved in this moment. Noticeably, in all the, all the predictions of the crucifixion, he doesn't mention crucifixion. Um, but then he says, in three days later he will rise, that those who sow in tears will reap with joy. And that's, that's the teaching the disciples perhaps miss and the teaching that we perhaps miss as well. But as with each of the predictions of the cross, Jesus, um, the disciples misunderstand something afterwards. So there are three predictions of the cross in Mark's gospel. Each time uh, there seems to be a misunderstanding between the disciples, or Mark preserves for us a teaching moment on the ways in which you can not get these things. And so this time it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us what, whatever we ask, which is bold. Um, uh, James and John seem to have a closer relationship to Jesus in the Gospels along with Peter, and so there might be a way in which they're thinking, hey, let's figure out this system. Um, and Jesus, like a good parent, I think, when somebody, your children come for you, we, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. The question is, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Not yes. Um, and probably not no either, um, but, but to say, that's a lot. Um, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
Um, this is what they're asking for. Now, part of this is a teaching going back to the last passage um, about wealth, is that Jesus, at the end of that, if you remember, praised them for how they left everything. And that when the kingdom comes in its full, well, in the present world, they will have all of which they left restored to them, except for fathers, we talked about that, and added persecutions, um, which is a very truthful way to look at what the church is going to go through. The, the gospel tells the truth of that while you gain in the church all these things, what comes with it is a world that rejects you. Um, but he praises them for that, and he says that in the kingdom to come, it'll be delivered to, uh, restored to you even more than that. Um, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who will be first will be last and the last first. The disciples, like us, I think, sometimes think, okay, how do we be the lastest last so we can be first? Um, uh, I particularly don't um, enjoy potlucks, which is like where I get in trouble. Um, but I, it's always a joke that it's like, oh, if I go last, then I shall be first. Kelly likes to go first at the potluck, and I say, oh, Kelly, that's great for you, but you'll be last in the day that comes. Um, and I go last not because of any goodness in myself, but just because why. Uh, um, we can get into, I don't want to talk more about potlucks. Um, besides, everybody thinks I'm just a jerk. Um, but, but the point being is that they're now aware of that there is first, they've misunderstood the previous passage. There is first and last in the kingdom. How do we get to the top of the firsts that are there? Which, without this teaching, I think would be a temptation of the church. How do we get to the lastest last so that we can be the first first when the kingdom comes? Um, humans love this style of competition. Um, even if it's, if, it's, if it's sinking down, knowing that we can be first, it might be that way. Um, and we see the ways in which... Um, Jesus might be dissuading us from the way in which you can play power plays around that teaching. Somebody else is last, so then we need to lay out for them. Somebody else is first, and they need to give up, which I don't think is the way that teaching is going. But James and John, I think, think that way it is, is that if, if there are first and there are last, can we be the ones that are basically second and third to your kingdom? Be the ones who sit at the right and sit at your left, when you come in your glory. There's probably two things they might be referencing there. One is, is sort of that, that banquet, and one is sort of that heavenly throne room. But we're not quite sure, but they're certainly asking to be raised up to that highest spot. Jesus answers them, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup uh, I drink or be baptized with the baptism, baptism I'm answer, uh, baptized with? We can, they answer, which uh, um, we've read the whole gospel, so we have the sense in which, um, no, <laughs> no, you can't. But, but they're living this story, right? And so they know John's baptism. Um, they've shared the cup of meals with Jesus, right? And so they're thinking, perhaps very literally, that like, yes, we've done John's baptism, we may have participated in John's baptism, we know this baptism for repentance, and we too also have shared the cup with you. We have this way in which we can, and so yes, we can. 
Their understanding here, I think, goes deeper to that human sense of, of our own distortions of trying to become first. They're not thinking about the long project of which Jesus is talking about. They're thinking of, in the moment, we can. Perhaps even we have done this. Um, and, and I alluded to this last week because I think it's important to the way that Jesus relates to humanity. It's, a, it's an understanding of who we are or our anthropology, which is this, is that, is that we, the, the words of Pascal, Pascal, I think, is where this originated. Is we are neither angel nor beast. And so much of the human anthropology is we're all beasts. Any good that comes out of us is surely just shocking. Uh, we're all angels, and when bad things happen, when people do things that don't fit the character of angels, we should all be shocked. Um, these two ways of understanding who we are. And what Pascal says, and I've been trying to trace this in the Gospels in my own reading, is that whenever the disciples are praised, quickly Jesus brings them back down to reality. And whenever they're at their low, he also raises them back up. And so when Jesus looks at humanity, he doesn't see a group of people who should never have air and sin within them as if they were angels. And at the same time, he doesn't leave us to say, well, we're just beasts. How could we do any better than that? And so the disciples in the last one, like I mentioned, are praised. Here, they're brought back down to earth. Now, the cup and the baptism, this is perhaps one of the most important parts of this, first parts of this teaching, is the cup and the baptism. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized in the baptism that I am baptized with? The first is the cup is most likely a reference to um, wrath and judgment. It's in Jeremiah and other places in the Old Testament that the cup upon which Jesus will drink is the cup of wrath and judgment. And it's the wrath and judgment that is against, um, in different places, either the nations which have swallowed up Israel or against Israel itself. And what's shocking here is Jesus, as he's become the one, this emissary of God on earth, as we now call him the Son of God, which is not revealed into the crucifixion, he's saying that he himself will drink that cup. It is neither poured out on those who have sinned, Israel, or it is neither poured out on those nations which have abused Israel. It is one in which the emissary of God, the Son of God himself, will drink. He says in the next scene that, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, that this cup has a costliness too, that there's this way in which this, this cup comes mingled with with the blood of the one who drinks that destruction for us so that we may receive salvation. Baptism, which we regard positively and should be regarded positively, what he's referring to here is the baptism of, of um, the overwhelming flood that is about to drown someone. Can you walk into the overwhelming flood of human suffering, sin and death and despair like I'm going to walk into that place. Uh, Rowan Williams, in a beautiful phrase, says that, that as we become the baptized ones, we too will be found in the neighborhood of chaos. But it is Jesus who enters into the chaos. He goes to his baptism to the depths in a darker way than is even possible for us. So they answer, we can't, and it's, the baptism is, is like that, um, psalm it's like that pattern we see often in scripture that that 
This, which is dead and void, will be brought back to life with God. As we, too, were lowered into the watery tombs of our death and destruction, or as Derek, uh, good news for Derek this Sunday, will be on May 1st, congrats, Um, as you are lowered into the watery tomb of your death and destruction, God is the one who also raises you up to new life. We're not left there. We can, they answered. Jesus responds to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism. You will be You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong for those whom they have been prepared. What Jesus um, then names for them is that we, going back to the last slide or two slides ago, we are followers on the Jesus way. We too will be invited into that cup. We too will be invited into that baptism, that watery chaos, that he is. But there's this notion that is always important for Christians to remember, and I probably over-remember it pastorally, although I'm sure I forget it in places, but that it is Jesus who is unique in his calling on earth. There is only one of him, and that we are merely followers, witnesses, imitators, um, people brought into that spirit, but we are never in the place of Jesus. We can never say, we can do what you did. There's a singularity to who Christ is. It's the one who paves this way for us. I mean, you could get into he lives his life perfectly. He does all these other things, which we classically, Christologically say as well. But wherever it is, it's important to always note that we are not, well, one, we are not Jesus. And two, uh, we have this way of airing ourselves into saying, how do we do Christ-likeness, which is a good biblical phrase, but it, we have to keep the emphasis on likeness more than we think. It is him we are invited into and that we live into. He, it is where in him we make our home and where we abide, but we are never near that point. We will be invited, as James and John um, James is one of the first martyrs, I think, in the book of Acts. Um, uh, John lives a, a life of suffering and in exile. We, too, will be invited into our own places as we follow Jesus on the way of life, but they will never be like his place. What he says to them, those places belong to those to have been prepared. Um, many of us see the, the, um, the crucifixion with the criminals on the right and his left being those in his enthronement. If Jesus' enthronement, and this is more clearly a theme in John, is the cross, then the right and the left are those crucified alongside of him. It's Karl Barth who always notes that the first church was with the two criminals surrounded around the crucified Christ. Um, should be hopeful for us because we're not on death row yet. Um, but this is John Christendom speaking about this time. You speak of honors, and I am discoursing of wealth and toil. For this is not a time of rewards, but of bloods, of battles, and dangers. This, we've talked about that in John, uh, Mark's gospel, Jesus is entering into this eschatological, this light, light, end times, this spiritual epic battle with the strong man that he has bound so that he can plunder us back out of the house. Christ is not speaking about honors, but speaking about wrestling and toil, not rewards, but of blood, of battles, and dangers. We as a church often can forget 
that what we're being offered into the gospel is not just this time of rewards, but we are invited into a time of battle, of blood, and of dangers. Might be easier to live safe today. We talked about this with persecution in the last sermon. But it is for the church to be engaged in the spiritual battle that Christ was engaged in. When the ten heard this, they were perfectly happy about it and left it be. <laughs> no. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Um, if you're one of the unnamed disciples and you're reading this with Mark's community, I'm, I hope you're like, because we knew that was a bad question. Um, when in fact it was probably that they were trying to reach the top ahead of them with Jesus alone. But I'd say, oh yeah, we knew that was a bad way to ask the question. That's why we were indignant. No, they probably also wanted to sit at the right and the left, which it seems to be what Jesus' sense here. He says, you, kn- you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, which is a place we'll stop in a second, but but what he says is that there's this way in which we see ruling in the world, and this seems to be what the disciples think is going to happen in the kingdom, and Jesus is saying the way in which you see the world as structured is not the way in which that kingdom is going to be structured. Now, the coins at this time, there's two coins. One has Herod on it um, that says... Um, to him who is due honor and uh, something else. And one, it's, it's sort of like offering deference to Herod. And the other one that um, for Caesar says to the son of God, that these two sort of coins, is that these Gentile rulers who rule over people brutally and are not particularly good people are claiming these sort of titles that you don't even get to consent to. Actually, if you want to sort of use money, you're a participant in the system. This is why Jesus, when he talks about taxes, you know, says whose picture is on the coin. Like, the whole structure is kind of a fraud because it's all labeled with propaganda for this empire that's fake. Um, But what Jesus says to them is that this in which you see in the world and how authority is structured, it will not be that way among you. Now, I meant to put up a picture of the book Servant Leadership, which was popular in CEO circles 10 years ago, maybe still is. But it, it's funny in, in, to me in which the ways, when we talk about the modern world, we've, we've taken the virtues of Christianity and emptied them from the one who embodied the virtues. And so when you talk, I was interviewing for a church once, not here, and they asked me, what, what's your vision for leadership? And I was like, weird question, um, uh, because I didn't know how to answer. So I said, I feel like I'm supposed to say servant leadership, but I honestly have no idea what that means. Um, and a guy there gave me the book, and it wasn't terrible. But what happens is, is that servant leadership becomes this way in which like, maybe the executive empties his own garbage, or maybe he um, spends more time seeing these things. But they're devoid from what Jesus says next. The not-so-among-you, this is where I think we lose in the church, is that the church, us as a people, is meant to be a contrast society to the way the Gentile world functions. So often we try to make the world more like us or to embody the virtues of the church, but we forget that here it is not so with us. We are not called to just be that but nicer. We're called to be something else, not so among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants, must, wants to be first must be the slave of all. Servant leadership in in the business world, while not opposed to, whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. 
Again, we're talking uh, wives, children, wealth, slaves. Jesus' answer to how you should handle your slaves is to be the slave of all, to be at the bottom, to be last. So we hear, not so among you. And what Jesus says next, this is the clearest description of his mission on earth from his mouth in Mark's gospel, from what all he has been doing. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the one whom we follow on this way, which it said the disciples were doing, did not come to be served, but to serve. And when we think of serving, it's the serving in which he becomes a ransom for us. He pays that which we cannot pay. Ransom paid in the ancient world was paid for those who were in slavery, those who were prison of war, and those who were criminals. And I was thinking in my spiritual life, and I was like, oh, at one point I've been one of all three of those. I've been like a prisoner of war, captive to forces in which I had dabbled or made myself prey to or had taken me. I have been um, brought into, into slavery to the destruction of my own devices and the devices of the world. I have been a criminal who just willingly turned against God. Those are people who had ransoms paid for them in the ancient world. And the process of bringing somebody out of ransom is redemption. So Christ came to say he didn't come to be served but to serve and then pairs it with being a ransom for many. He means paying for those to come out of that, to bring his people back. We've been talking about this throughout Mark's gospel, but Jesus is on a reclamation mission of that which has been lost to God. And his reclamation mission goes all the way to offering himself as a ransom for many, of laying his life down, of paying that point, of being that place, of doing that thing. It's a theological question of who gets paid, but I think we'll skip that. This is um, the quote on the back of the bulletin today where Fleming Rutledge in her great book on the crucifixion is summarizing the ransom theory of atonement. The redemption wrought by God and Christ was indeed a mighty deliverance and it points ahead to the glorious future of the reign of God. The ransom imagery reminds us that this great liberation not only involved a loosening from bondage, but also an atonement for sin. Not only a cosmic victory, but also an ultimate price. Cross, the, the cost of our redemption was the crucifixion of the Son of God. Otherwise, we cannot find a place within our understanding for the sheer horror and godlessness of such a death. That God goes there for us. So we'll end with these words from the book of Isaiah describing some of this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that was brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Let us pray.
God, in your prediction of your third passion, of your passion, you name the ways in which we follow you on this way of life, on the way in which you walk, and the way in which we are called to walk. And we, through reading the Gospel of Mark, become seers and witnesses to that story, those events at which you faithfully walked to Jerusalem. As we become that, we become like James and John sometimes. We're on this march with you. Can we be at your right or your left? And you ask the question which points to your mission, that there is a cup for only you to take on, and there is a baptism into destruction and to death in which we would find no way out of, minus your leading us there. God, call us into your way of being. May we hear the not so among you. And as we witness these weeks going forward from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter Sunday, may we see in which the ways in which you came not to be served, but to serve. And through your glory gave yourself up as a ransom for us and for many. We ask and pray and praise all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.